This is Includerpod, a podcast that explores inclusivity, diversity, and how to find common ground with just about anyone, all through a scientific lens. I'm your host, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. I'm an actor, podcaster, model, and guest judge on the hit TV series, RuPaul's Drag Race. As a Black queer man, I know firsthand that with deep inclusion and acceptance from others, I can show up not only as my best self, but as my whole self. Creating a safe space is the foundation of authenticity, and everyone is welcome here. Welcome to the Includer Pod. No matter how successful I've become in my career, I'll never get over the firing that happened to me 30 years ago when I had been the creator of a very successful children's television show. But the head of the production company decided that because I was gay, he did not want me in that position anymore. So no matter what any of the executives at the network felt, no matter what any of my colleagues felt, this man was able to manipulate the situation so that I was out of the picture and I had no recourse. As the director of development for a small production company, as a woman, interestingly enough, the owner of the business often praised me and considered himself a feminist and talked often about how he loved that he had two women working at the company, myself and a producer who was extremely amazing at her job. But then when push would come to shove, very, very basic bottom level respect would go out the window. For example, if we had a very high profile client, particularly if that client was male, he would forget to introduce us. And when myself and this producer would enter a room with an important client, even if I myself made built the relationship or, or reached out to this person, he wouldn't always introduce us with our name and title. We would just be these two women standing in the room, sort of uncomfortably waiting for the right moment to introduce ourselves. And I found that to be extremely discouraging and problematic. And it was a, a primary reason that I ended up leaving that company. With many workplaces shifting to fully remote or hybrid settings, it's more important than ever to build strong, connected teams. It's no secret that we can accomplish more working together than we can apart, no matter the industry or role you find yourself in. Giving everyone on the team a chance to offer their perspective and share their unique experiences ultimately increases success and productivity levels, giving new meaning to the term ROI, or as some like to call it, return on inclusion. But what are the secrets to building a team that not only accepts and supports one another, but that also champions inclusivity and celebrates our differences? And more fundamentally, how can we define the word team in the first place, given the complexities of today's world? Is a team a space where collaboration can take place freely? Is it the pursuit of a shared goal? Is it finding common ground through lived experiences or something else entirely? Today's guest, Ash Beckham, is an inclusion activist, inclusive leadership expert, motivational speaker, business leader, and the author of Step Up, How to Live with Courage and Become an Everyday Leader. Known for her unique voice, relatable style, and powerful guidance, Ash's TEDx talk, Coming Out of Your Closet, quickly became a viral sensation. A popular speaker and leadership educator, she frequently addresses topics including embracing a different vision of leadership to create change in our workplaces, schools, places of worship, 
communities, and more. So to kick it off, I'm wondering if you can share a bit about your background and your career so far. Unexpected, I feel like, is is the best way to say it. My um, parents were both entrepreneurs, and um, I felt really lucky to grow up in that environment. But like any, you know, 18-year-old, I swore I would never do that. I wanted, like, the corporate office and the 401k and, like, all this security. I don't know why. Just, like, what were your parents didn't give you, I guess. I don't know. I had an amazing life. In retrospect, I was just an angsty, closeted 18-year-old, I think. So so I decided, you know, that's what I wanted. I wanted the the whole shebang in, in kind of that corporate structure and and then kind of got, started working a little bit and I had a job, you know, beyond just like uh, any service industry job, had, a, had like my first real job and I lasted about 12 months. I was like, I don't like working for other people. So uh, kind of pursued this track of trying a bunch of different things, right? And eventually got to the point where I kind of put it together and had some breathing room and realized I hadn't done anything creative in a really long time and, and went to a, a talk you, uh, you all probably have them in LA called Ignite. Um, and so you five minutes, slides auto advance every 15 seconds. Um, and, and I went to one of those and, you know, like a live performance and it just, you know, a community event seemed really cool. And there was this guy that spoke about his ups and downs with weight loss. And there was like something about this guy and his authenticity and the fact that he wasn't a professional and his honesty that just inspired. I was like, oh, I want to create that feeling in other people, right? That sense of like a serious topic that you could... Uh, make funny and also people don't feel alone. Like I, I just love that feeling. So the next time it came up, I um, signed up for it and, and got lucky enough to get picked and and did my first talk. And and then all of a sudden it, it caught traction, right? And half a million people saw it. And I was like, ah, that wasn't, that wasn't on my plan, right? That's not what I was trying to do. And the boldest, so that was like February of 2013. And then, um, then that fall was when TEDx Boulder was and a small community of speakers here. And I um, incredible coaching and, you know, um, encouragement and, uh, prodding and, and all the things it takes to make you do something scary. Uh, I shared that story. And then that kind of catapulted me into this, into this, um, speaking world that I wasn't ready for, but the way that it resonated and the honesty of the story and, and the difference I thought I was making, you know, you, you just kind of, you, you keep going and, and kind of overcome your fear because it's kind of bigger than you. And, and so that's, that's kind of how it got started. And that was, you know, whatever that is, like uh, eight, nine years ago. And so it's been a, a career path. One, it was still one of the many. I still like to have my fingers in lots of pots, but uh, still still one that um, that I do uh, pretty pretty regularly and, and consistency and, and feel super, super honored to be able to practice that work. Mm, so this is what you mean when you refer to yourself as the accidental advocate then. So it was hearing that man's story of authenticity about weight loss that inspired you to do the same. I didn't realize that your TEDx talk coming out of the closet was your first public speaking gig. That's hugely impressive. I mean, and yeah. what a way to kick it off to get up there and sh- share this vulnerable side of yourself and your life's experience and for it to go viral in the way that it did. How did that affect you personally? How did that make you feel? I mean, it was just kind of in shock. I mean, I remember working with a good friend of mine, uh, one of the kind of launching pads for it going beyond, you know, just being shared on Facebook was being on upworthy.com. And and a friend of mine was like, hey, I want to publish this. You know, I, I just want to make sure you're ready. And I was like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure what that means. And I was like, well, you need to like, get a Twitter handle with your name. Like <laughs> you need, people are going to want to contact you, like buy your name as a URL. Like this is, could be big. And I was like, oh, you know, I didn't know what I was, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and then I think you go through that phase. And I remember being, my sister was in Chicago at the time and going to visit for a friend's wedding, being on the L and somebody like looking at me, looking at their phone, looking at me and being like, is that you on my Facebook page? It was so bizarre. 
And then you get to the point where you think everybody recognizes you. So I got a little, <laughs> a little arrogant. And I think I, I lost my humility and kind of, kind of thought I was a bigger deal than I was. And so then that brings it back down to earth. But I do, I have, you know, friends and family that have been so supportive, but also, you know, that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't change what you do. And, and that's kind of the reason I like having my hands in a couple different pots is because I would go from like speaking in an auditorium with 1500 people to, you know, going to, I work events. And so then like driving a forklift and like, nobody really cares what your TEDx view numbers are. Like right. just put the thing in the right spot and don't end anybody. Right. So, <laughs> so I feel like that, you know, I, I feel like that's just always been important to me to maintain that. So I think it was pendulous in the beginning, mm -hmm. um, just cause you don't, I, you know, you'd, I just don't know what's going to happen. How quickly is it going to be over? Is it really resonating? I mean, there's mm -hmm. certainly, I mean, overwhelmingly a positive response, but some negative responses and, you know, those hit deeper. It's hard because you are your brand, you know, it's personal. And so it's hard to detach that, but also for your own sanity and humility and all of the things that matter, like you, you just kind of have to, it's, it's a weird feeling for it to be you, but then is it, you know, I don't know. How do you maintain that authenticity throughout that? It's a challenge. I completely can relate to that. It's funny you talking about authenticity and vulnerability. It's so vulnerable of you to um, be able to acknowledge and state here so um, matter of factly that your ego really did get the best of you at a certain point, thinking that you were bigger than you actually were, which I think so many of us can relate to in, in moments like that. What was it about speaking and writing about empathy and respect? Why did you decide to step into that? Like, why was that your focus from the get-go? Yeah. Well, I think it's a, all about having these continuing conversations, right? I mean, I think I went through, for me, there was kind of this arc of, of advocacy that went from, you know, not necessarily public advocacy, but personally advocating for myself that, you know, you, you don't have your voice for so long and then you find your voice and then, in, and then, then you have to balance like scaling it back. Right. And, and I think once you've been quiet for so long or been meek for so long, or, mm. or felt like you didn't have a place to speak for so long, and then you do, it's hard to reel that back in, but then you get this perspective of like, well, what difference do I actually want to make? That it isn't this very reactive space, but it's it's an intentional space of like, what is the change that I want to see happen? And, you know, is like soapboxing and yelling at people the change that I want to make? And, and that, you know, certainly there's times that I think that that's important, but for me to most effectively make change, it was about softening rather than hardening. Part of that hardening, I think, is from, self-protection, like that's what we do, right? If we're going to put ourselves out there, it's going to come back, right? And so you got to be ready for it. But that isn't just, um, it's just isn't engaging. You know, I didn't want them to think differently about me because I was gay. I wanted them to think differently about gay people because now they knew one. But the only way we're going to do that is to have a conversation because people have their preconceived notions about so many things that it's about a conversation. And so, you know, it's kind of, it was on me to meet them where they were and, and try to talk through that. And the, and I think the only way you can get there is, is through empathy and, and respect. And that's the thing I feel like that's so great about empathy is different than sympathy, right? Like you don't have to agree with someone to be empathetic with them. All you have to do is be willing to see it from their lens. And at that point you can have a conversation with nearly anyone, right? If you have no, no intention to change their mind and, and you're secure enough in your beliefs that, that they're not going to change yours, but you're open to that, like you're just open to growth and conversation, you can, you can literally talk to anybody. You know, I think that's something that's, that so many queer people can 
can relate to. And you've really stepped up to the plate as a leader in this space. And I think that people are often stunned and amazed at others, meaning women or people of color or trans folk or queer folk or whatever it may be, having the boldness and audacity to stand in our authenticity and speak truth to power. Has this confidence and courage always been ingrained in who you are? And if not, I guess I'm curious to know what tools and what people and what experiences along the way shaped you into the bold leader you are today? Yeah, I mean, I think it was there to a certain extent. I mean, I think it was there when I was young, right? You, you, you kind of, you don't know the consequence. Like, I think I was always, you know, a little bit of a ham, like to get up in front of people, but then something externally that then gets internalized stops you, right? All of a sudden, that authenticity doesn't fly anymore. And and we're fitting in these boxes and we're doing what we're supposed to do and we're crushing on who we're supposed to crush on. And girls so many times minimize ourselves, right? And there's this like need to blend in. And as a kid that never wanted to, but then like for social survival felt the need to, then it's really hard to get back out because, you know, not only do you think that there are those people that are are, are telling you these forces externally that are that are telling you to quiet down, you don't believe enough in yourself, right? There's a part of you that says, who the hell do you think you are? Your voice hasn't mattered for so long. You've just been going along. Like, why does it, why does it matter now? Like for me, it was like coming out the first time. And I remember being so angry, like coming out and then being so angry at my friends that weren't like out in their everyday lives and just like feeling kind of like this elitist view of them of like, why would you do that? Like be stronger. And then you think about it and you're like, whoa, whoa, that's it. That is everybody's journey. Like the internal struggles, the external struggles, the family struggle, like everything that's going to come with that, everybody's on their own path. And, and also I was there three months ago, right? Like I would never want to go back in the closet. So then I had this feeling of like, well, if I am out, then I have a responsibility for all, to all the people that can't be to speak. Like if I have, if I have it and I have the voice and the confidence and the privilege of my whiteness and the privilege of my cisgender identity and the privilege of my ability, right? Like, let's not pretend that just because I'm a lesbian that I'm at the bottom of the totem pole, right? Like I have plenty of privilege and to use that in a powerful way to make someone else feel not alone, to me, that is that is the responsibility of, of leadership. Did you have those examples in your parents as entrepreneurs? Did you see them as leaders? They did, you know, you see like, I, you know, we all have our things with uh, challenges with our parents and like how you see them. But I, for me, it like took a while to, to step back and kind of get out of my parents' house and see that. I mean, they always adored me and they were amazing parents. Um, but I remember seeing my mom for the first time, she owned a retail store and, and somebody walked in and it was a maternity store. And this woman walked in and was, you know, super uncomfortable. And, and I remember my mom, like, somehow the way my mom talked to this woman of like, oh, you must be a size four or whatever. And this woman was not a size four, but she like my mom's ability to relate to this woman with where she was and like give her that confidence. Like the way she makes people feel is so amazing. And so that, you know, you like see that and you're like that treatment of people. And my dad um, was like always the creative entrepreneur, always the one, always like the new thing, then, you know, like, and it was always fun, right? He owned like video game rooms in the eighties. It was, it was, he like did what he loved. He owned an ice cream shop because he loved ice cream. Like that's kind of what he did. And also worked tremendously 
um, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like they must have looked at them. I hope they looked at themselves in the mirror and been like, I'm a good person. Like they were just good people. It's just like a confidence in, in what, what does it mean to be a good person? And then by default, you're a leader. Like people wanted to follow them because they were good people. Like my dad was a great coach. People want to play for him because he was just a good guy. Like, I think that that's that whole leadership, not by how many people report to you or what your title is or what the size of your budget line is, right? It's like, who are you today right now? Who are you at church? Who are you at the park? Who are you in the office, right? Like all of those things, but like, who are you day after day, day in, day out? And not in these like monumental things in these like small incremental ways. Like who are you when people are looking, right? Ooh. Ooh. That is good. You just got me there. Who are you? They're my three favorite questions in the world, but who are you when people aren't looking? So I know that that for myself as a biracial queer person, that my perceived otherness has affected nearly every space I've entered into since puberty. And we know that the world looks at us and delegates us into a different category than the status quo because of our sexual identification. Having this, this advantage of this different vantage point, how do you think your sexuality has affected your perspective on leadership? I think you have a very acute awareness of what it feels like to be included. Like, you know how critical those nonverbal cues are. Mm -hmm. It is this innocent declaration of allyship and safe spaceness. And to know, to verbalize that, I think is critical. It's like the same reason I, when you're going through a job interview and somebody asks you pronouns, like it's to make the people who choose non-traditional pronouns or pronouns that they wouldn't be assigned based on their sex at birth. Like, but really it's about straight cis people too, because it makes you really know how important that is to the organization. So I think it's it's all about those cues of safety. It's about the the language that you choose. So I think coming up, you know what it feels like pre-marriage equality for the company email to say spouse. And you'd be like, well, I mean, that's like how we consider it, right? Like if there's not a box to check, you have to draw a box. So your job as leaders to make sure there's as many boxes as we need. Or we just get rid of boxes. And you, we have our own blind spots, right? Like we have the places that we can't see. That's why this is constantly growing, right? Constantly changing in what LGBTQ identities are, in racial identities, in other challenges, right? That, that we always have to know we're always leaving somebody behind. So how does that inclusive view become 360? Like how are we always making sure we're moving forward but there isn't anybody that's excluded. And to me, the vulnerability comes into play there in a leadership role in going to your team and crowdsourcing that information, right? It's not your job as the leader to have the answers. It's to be able to find the answers, to collectively get to the place where there can be answers. And so how do we make that a team effort? How do we say, hey, who, who, who are we excluding in this language? Who do our bathrooms exclude? What does our health plan exclude, right? Like who are we leaving out? We have to be aware of that. And then you create team members who are cognizant of that. So you're not the only one with your eyes out for it, right? That's not your job. It's to create a, a group of people within your team. And by team, I mean work team, the PTA. I mean, whoever your groups are, your community, right? And so how do we get those people to be just as vigilant about that, to think about their actions and who they're excluding, right? I think that that's, that's kind of this key piece around teams that is so critical. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's why and how sensitivity and individuality can be viewed as a superpower in these settings. It's so obvious to us as as marginalized individuals stepping into the microcosm of the corporate world or the macrocosm of the or society at large. It was it wasn't it wasn't built for us or for people like us. So it's so easy for us to identify the fundamental flaws in the foundation when we can recognize that this world was built on a foundation of white supremacy, patriarchy, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia. So when we do enter into these spaces, um, there's not an inherent sense of belonging. So I think it's fair to say that we've made, that we've made considerable progress in terms of being more open and accepting of LGBTQIA plus community in workspaces while simultaneously acknowledging that a tremendous amount of work still needs to be done. What do you think going forward that work needs to look like? Well, you know, we're in such a new environment now, obviously with, with virtual and, and what that looks like. And, and that creates an entire different layer, right? For some people that makes it so much, so much easier for other people you're bringing somebody into your home, like what's more vulnerable than that, right? How conscious are you of of who walks in or whose voice is heard or if the dog barks or whatever, right? Like we're so conscious of bringing people into our lives like that, that is intimate. And so to acknowledge that as, as a leader and that some people are either not comfortable or not able to do that. And so creating workspaces where that can actually happen, I think is, is super important. But I think we're always looking through that inclusion lens that we can uh, most effectively have those conversations as a team in this kind of grassroots matter, right? There's like policy and then there's practice. And I feel like the policy is getting there. I mean, it used to be like a wink and a nod. Oh, if you work for this company, it's great. Or as long as you're in the marketing department, you're fine, right? Like there were these kind of like cues that existed. But now it's like, if you're DEIB now, you know what I mean? We're like always adding things to it, but I feel like that belonging piece, you brought it up. And I think that's so important. But as a larger corporation, if corporation, if that is not part of your website, like if that is not searchable, you're at a competitive disadvantage in your recruiting because it isn't just about us anymore, obviously. It's about creating a culture of inclusion beyond LGBTQ. And now my sister or my straight best friend, like that's on their radar too, right? Like if they don't see it, they might be able to exist in that space, but A, they know how much diversity positively affects what is produced by an organization and also not saying something is now negative, right? Before it was like, well, what if, you know, we don't want to alienate people back and forth, you go back and forth and, and now that just isn't the case. So I think the policy is is there. I think the practice, depending on where you are and what the leadership looks like may have a long way to go, right? And I think because we, it's this middle management squeeze, right? You've got like C-level folks that get it, right? They understand they're, in a place of power and privilege where they're looking at competitive organizations that work, right? Like I've worked with a bunch of banks and if one bank has a certain DEI policy, it's really easy to get another bank to adopt it, right? Because they don't want to be outdone in that space. And then you've got the you know younger generation that's coming in that that's what they expect, right? They've been queering out since middle school, right? Like they don't know any other way. And, and so they have an expectation of that's what it looks like. And, and if I'm not applying somewhere where that isn't the case, but then you've got these, like myself, 40 something, 50 something that are like, what the hell? Like I get it, but I don't, how do I apply it? Like, I don't know. I'm like straight and live on a cul-de-sac, you know, with my two kids and a dog. And I just happen to be gay and live on a cul-de-sac. 
with my wife and two kids and her dog, right? Like we're, we're all the same. We're doing the same thing, but like, it's those middle people that were taught that it wasn't okay. We don't talk about race. We don't talk about these things, right? We, we just like go through. And if I say, I'm so afraid to say something, I'm going to say the wrong thing. I say nothing. Right. And so that's like who we need to target. Individuality is something that's so important, obviously, to recognize that we as queer people or people of color or whatever are not a monolith, um, you know, members of the status quo, straight, white, cisgender people are not a monolith. What you were just touching on there, that so many people have good intentions, but don't necessarily know how to put it into practice. I think that, you know, switching our perspective from individuality to community and to, into tribes, into teamwork, I think the word team carries multiple meanings today and may take several different forms, whether you're a freelancer working on a set as an actor like I am, or, you know, meeting with corporate partners or a multitude of other different dynamics. How can we begin to learn to navigate these different settings and expand our perspective of what it means to work in a team setting? It's again, it's this balance, right? Like I think so much of it comes from being secure in ourselves, right? being secure that our individuality is paramount, right? That, that we are part of the team, not despite our individuality, but because of it. And then also being open to the superpowers of others, right? To, to be able to see that, to be, to be welcoming in that, you know, it's not a, it's not a one way street. And so as much as I want to speak my individuality and showcase my individuality and, and bring that, I have to be willing to see that in other people too, to create this welcoming environment, not just by people that agree with me or that are like-minded or that vote like I do, right? Everybody. And then when there is conflict, how do we deal with it in a productive way, right? How do we, how do we make sure everybody, it's not just the loudest person that's getting heard, that everybody has the opportunity to showcase because somebody else's individuality might be more quiet, might be more introverted, right? Like how do we navigate that of, you know, it's not going to fit together all the Pieces of the pie aren't going to fit together, but we can all bring a seat around the table, right? And we can invite more people to the table and we look and see who's not represented at this table, right? And, and what can we do to make sure those interests are represented? Doesn't happen overnight, but it starts to happen when people begin to be vulnerable. When I put myself out there, right? When, when I start to share my story or my perspective or why, right? Like that's, we are better as a group because I have traveled a different path than you have to arrive where we are right now. And, and I'm bringing everything, the good and the bad, with me here. And the more that I can talk to you about that, the more we can effectively collaborate, right? Because there might be things about you that, that I learned that I can then be a better support to you because I know some of the struggles that you have, right? You have, is there somebody that you're taking care of in, in your life that you need some extra time with, right? Are you gonna work different hours because of the restrictions that you have? But if, if you don't know if I don't know that about you, then then how can I be flexible enough to support you? I mean, as we touched on earlier, it's you know it's quite obvious that corporate settings, the establishment, as you put it, it, it wasn't built for. It, it was built on a on a on a foundation of exclusion and privilege, essentially. So I think that uh, you know mastering leadership it it, ha it has so much to do with unlearning the societal norms that have been put in place and that we've been conditioned to accept since birth. But I guess my question is, do you believe that we as human beings are naturally hardwired to succeed as teammates and leaders? Or is this a practice that we need to learn to nurture consistently over time? 
I mean, I think both, right? Like, I think we are hardwired. Like, I think anybody that's listening to this, to, that is listening to this right now, you are in a position of leadership. It could be a leader of one, right? But you are in a position of leadership. And so it is time that we act like leaders, act mm -hmm. like the leaders that we are, that we take the power that we need, the responsibility for who we are. In the traditional sense of leadership, right? If we're, if we're unlearning that, there are going to be people that see you as a leader that never tell you, that are complete strangers, right? That like, when they see you hold the door for somebody, when they see the way that you talk to a stranger on the street, the way you have a conversation with the barista at the coffee shop, like just the way you are as a human, right? That energy is what we wanna see. And so it's gonna be all the ripple effect of all the people around you in the same way that, you know, you deal with a difficult situation or you deal with a conflict and what do you lead with, right? Are you leading with empathy? Are you leading with kindness? Like you said in the beginning, like, what kind of change do I want to be? And there are going to be people around you that see that, that take something away from that, that changes the way that they act the next time. And you'll never know. So to see leadership in a more holistic way, right? Like we don't do it for the praise. We do it for the pride because you're going to affect so many more people than you ever know when you see leadership outside of these are my direct reports that I meet with every other week and my indirect reports I meet with once a month. Like that's not what it's about. And so I think when you take on this leadership role within your family, within your community, then you, you take the skills that you learn, your ability to deal with conflict, the, the confidence that comes from positive outcomes, right? And you take that into other aspects where it seems scarier, where it seems maybe not as safe. So I think we're all predisposition, we have a predisposition of leadership. I, I think we just automatically are because we live in community. And so we look to each other. I am telling everyone right now, you are a leader. There's not one more thing you have to do. All you have to do is try to be better tomorrow. And you're, and sometimes you're not going to be right. Like you're going to fail. Like that's the thing. Like that's what makes true leaders, right? I don't want to hear about the times that you were awesome. Cause I have no doubt. I want to hear about the times that you failed and kept coming back because that to me is what leadership is about. Right, Because if you're not pushing your limits, if you're not doing the things that are hard, without challenge, there's no change, right? So you have to be pushing the limits. And if you're not failing, if you're not making mistakes, saying the wrong thing, not saying something at the right time, like all the ways we critique the way we do stuff, if you're not doing that, then, then you're not pushing your limits and you're selling yourself short and, and we need you to be the best version of yourself. And the only way we get there is, is to kind of push our limits. So, so to me, it is something that we always work on. We just, you try to be, a better person tomorrow than you were today. Inspiration has a ripple effect. Ash's journey to public speaking and writing first began because she witnessed someone else's ability to be open and vulnerable. Today, after listening to Ash speak about inclusion, I'm inspired to keep doing better and championing advocates like her who are making our world a safer space. This just goes to show that we all hold the power to inspire and empower others to speak their truth, even if it may not seem that way from the outset. Regardless of age, job title, gender, or race, we are all leaders. It's time to step into this role in a way that feels unique and authentic to you. Ash said it best, it's not about your position, but your disposition in life. I'm curious to know, can you recall a time in your life when you consciously felt practices of deep inclusion and support in a team setting? Yeah, I, I remember 
going to uh, one of my first jobs I had um, after I had come out and, you know, didn't really didn't really say anything. It was, you know, kind of in like I'm kind of a dead giveaway for anybody that's you know what I mean? Like, I don't really hide my lesbianism very well. I never have. But like I I wasn't out. And so I finally ended up coming out to my boss and like referring to my girlfriend at the time. It was like I had told her that I had a Labrador retriever as a dog. Like it was just like, didn't even phase her. You know, it wasn't like, oh, like there was, you know, you watch people's reaction. You wait for the like stumble or the stutter or the whatever. It like didn't even phase this woman, probably because she already knew. But regardless, it was just like, this is what we're doing. She she brought people on the team together. We all went to a gay bar together. Like we we were, she was very inclusive, like intentionally inclusive with people that she knew would be supportive of me. So I had my people, right? Like I knew where I would be safe. And if there were people that wanted to opt out, that was fine, right? Like it wasn't a, it wasn't a big deal, but it was this just very overt sense of you are a part of this family and by extension, so are the people that you love. And so come on in. Like, and really what it was, was it's not us, it's you. We're not what's holding you back. You're holding you back. If you just own it and tell and and be honest and straightforward and like give us a chance, we're here for you. But we can't be here for you if you're not fully yourself. You know, we've been fed so many messages uh, in our culture that it isn't safe to to express those, you know, deepest, truest, most vulnerable sides of ourselves, especially when it comes to LGBTQIA plus identity. But in that vein. Have you ever felt excluded or rejected while on a team, whether it's at work or in sports or in school? And how did you handle it? Yeah, I mean, I can't, I mean, I'm sure there was a time. And I think what you do is, for me, in those scenarios, I just never came out. I had the ability to hide that. As a person of color, you don't, right? Like that's a conscious decision of mine to be safe or not be safe. And that is not a conscious decision that my friends of color have the ability to make. So I acknowledge that privilege and know that that was an amazing position to be in, to be like, mm, I don't feel safe here. I'm actually not. And then you, I think you just disengage and then you find your way off the team. Like you, you move to a different organization. You just like, you just, it's just part of your story is, Removing yourself from that, I think, is what I did. And but the first thing you do is disengage, I think, and you're just not fully present as a as a team member. You're not rowing in the same direction because you don't feel supported. Like I get it. That's no one's that's no one's fault, I think. But you that's I think what happens a lot more in work environments, right? As, as opposed to my Thursday softball team that I could just like step away from, right? Like it, you just. You just do your job. You go in, you put your head down, you do your job and you walk out and that's it. And and then it ends up being widgets, right? Like you could be doing this anywhere and then you find a place where you can bloom, but you just, it's like um, exclusion by proxy, right? Like nobody's intentionally excluding me. I'm just not allowing myself to be vulnerable enough to be excluded, I think is is much more likely scenario. Yeah, that's, I mean, it seems like such an obvious solution, but one that I truly had never even considered before. Somebody who grew up in such a small, very conservative town, just the idea of removing yourself from the situation if it doesn't feel psychologically or emotionally or physically safe. I mean, I physically removed myself from the entire town, but you sure, know, right. just, you know, from just, you know, focusing on a, on a microcosm scale, removing yourself from the immediate environment is, is, uh, yeah. 
you know, I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's the best and safest thing for us to do as individuals. Tell me about your recent book, Step Up, How to Live with Courage and Become an Everyday Leader. Can you share some tidbits of advice from the book? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's a little bit of what we we talked about. So I'm um, I'm really excited about it. It was it was fun. It, it came out uh, in March of of twenty, which is about the worst possible time that you could launch a book. But I mean, it comes out when it comes out, right? You don't get to choose those things sometimes. So it was a, a labor of love, and I feel like I never really considered myself a writer, more of a more of a speaker. But knowing in that inclusive way that that people digest information differently, right? Mm-hmm. And that some people are much more analytical and want to be able to read it and highlight it. And, and hearing it once was kind of this like flash in the pan showmanship, right? But like actually putting it down, I feel like grounded grounded me more in the work mm-hmm. um, and, and really helped. So uh, it's about eight pillars and, and really what it is is a toolbox, right? So we think of the eight, eight pillars that are holding the house up or holding the barn up, that we need all of these things. And that uh, it's the old adage, right? Like if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And and we find ourselves in all these different situations, right? A conversation we have with a parent is conversa- different than a conversation with our boss or different than a conversation with our teacher or the roles that we take as a 12-year-old captain of the soccer team, right? Like we we have all these different in- environments that we get in. And to be the best leader we can be and to be an inclusive leader, we choose which tools we use in any given situation. We're very intentional about the change that we make. And so it goes through things like empathy, responsibility, courage, grace, authenticity, humility, right? All of these different things that you might need a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but you have in a full tool belt, right? As much as you could possibly want to be able to pull out whatever tools you need in that situation. So part of it is the analysis what do, what do I want from this situation? Where where are we? Is somebody coming at me that is really in a place of learning? Do I need to disarm them like we we talked about? Like what is going to make this situation positive in my definition of it, right? And what is it going to take to make this inclusive? And not that, you know, there it's not full of 15 second sound bites that's going to help you in every situation, right? It, this is more of like the ongoing work to keeping conversations going. And, and so that's what the book is, is, you know, there's some takeaways in there and some sample action items, again, because it's these small steps that all of these things are actionable, that we can all take things in, in the everyday leadership piece is, first of all, any of us can do it. And second of all, it is something that we do every day. It's a practice that we do every day. Uh, and so how do we take these little things and, and, and get better at them? And then, you know, you never, if you do something different every day and, and, you, and you take a tiny step up, you know, a couple steps back, a couple of tiny steps up, you take the end of a week or a month or a year. And all of a sudden the thing that used to be scary is just part of what you do every day. And you're taking on these new things, right? You're always going off that feeling of pushing yourself just a little bit more, but that the incremental testing of ourselves is is really where, where that change comes from. And like we've talked about multiple times, being the change, you have to be willing to change, right? You have to. Absolutely obsessed with, completely in love with. You've often talked about daring your audience to be truthful. For for the for those listeners who haven't experienced your TED talks, uh, which what are you doing? Get online and experience <laughs> Ash's TED talks. Uh, what is, what is your formula for daring people to be truthful? What are some of the tips and hacks you you use to unite a room and to dare people to be truthful? And why is this important? I think it starts with my own honesty, right? Like if if I, it's it's hard to sit there in any leadership position and in mm. the context that you're talking, if I'm the person speaking in the room, then I, by default, am, am the leader. And so in that, like you, you, 
you show your cards first, right? Like there, you the ego's got to be out of it to a certain extent. So my much like the TED Talks, any of the keynotes I give are super vulnerable, and I just tell my story. And oftentimes, I am the goat rather than the hero. That's just kind of how how it operates. Because to me, that's much more compelling. Because we don't want our leaders to be perfect. Because that's not relatable. We want them to be real. And then again, you don't have to like tell your whole life story, right? These things can be small, like just a just a hint of truthfulness. So we'll start it with share, you know, get in groups of three or whatever and share something that n- nobody at work typically does are in that, that environment, but that nobody knows about you. And it'll be, you know, I'm on a coral, I'm in a coral group, or I like to do woodworking, or I've, you know, done the Appalachian Trail, like whatever people it's, but then all of a sudden it's like the humanness that comes from the person on the other side of the cube, right? Or now the person on the other side of the screen, like that humanity is so important. So then when I see something on hiking, I'm like, oh, hey, I can, I can show that to Barb. Oh, did you hear about the family that hiked the Appalachian Trail instead of their kid going to school or whatever? You know what I mean? Whatever these like stories are, there's so much that happens in our world that like, once you know that it like flags for you. So, so I think it's, you don't have to tell your deepest, darkest secrets. You don't have to come out. You don't have to, you know, tell about your deepest struggles. Like that comes later. That comes when you build the trust, right? When it feels really safe. But but the practice of like getting that pit of your stomach before you like share something and you don't know how people are going to judge it, like that's the practice. That's the work. And so how do we, how do we do that? So I go over the top because it's me and that's kind of part of it, of showing people that extreme when somebody tells you their story, good, bad, happy, sad, whatever, it's it's like, it's really hard to disagree with someone who's being vulnerable because they're just sharing their experience, right? And I don't do it so you feel sorry for me. Like, please don't. That's so disempowering. Don't ever feel sorry for me. Be empathetic. Understand. Know what it's like to be somebody else, right? But like, that's why I share the stories. And so so that's what I empower people to do is, is like that one little thing you just tell somebody something about yourself that that they don't know, right? It broadens their scope of you some, from this like two-dimensional version that we so often know in, in our work lives. I think that people, like we discussed, want to do better, but don't necessarily know how to. Um, you discussed creating a safe space for for yourself or for people like me by just, you know, people having, um, you know, being not, not having an insane reaction to stating the truth of our personal lives, having a partner of the same sex or whatever it may be. How do you think we can better support marginalized individuals within marginalized communities? Right. Well, I think it's all about using our privilege, right? Like if we have the seat at the table, we have to look around and see who else is sitting there. And if we don't have the representation of those people, like I think we can represent them to a certain extent, but then we use our power and our privilege to get another's chair at the table, right? To know what we're missing by not having people. When we when we have the ability and the capacity to hold the mic, how do we give that mic to somebody else? Like, how is that, how do we give people the the ability and the power to speak for themselves? I know how I would want somebody to ally for me, but I don't necessarily know how I would want how somebody else wants me to ally for them. And so to to take that kind of let my lens and think that my version of allyship is a one size fits all is so disconnected from the people that I'm trying to be an ally for. So like, how do we listen? How do we see where our role fits? How do we see what we can do? How do we have those conversations of, you know, I've done that before, like I was in a, um, 
when I worked in a restaurant um, and I was, you know, kind of high on my um, advocacy for myself, uh, this friend was, uh, her family was undocumented and they were in the grocery store and there was a, um, just a racist interaction. And I like lost my mind seeing my, seeing my friend in this position and jumped up in my like kind of, um, you know, stump speech way and just like ridiculed this person and, and, you know, they walked away and whatever. And I was so proud of myself. You know what I mean? Like I about pulled my arm, patting myself on the back. And my friend was like, you can't do that. Like if you escalated in that way and the police come or somebody comes and people find out that we're not documented, like then we all have to leave. Like, do you know the position that you just put us in by what you were doing? Like, that's not what I need from you. And I was just like, I was, I was floored, but it was a great lesson in, you have to know who you're standing up for and the intricacies of what that looks like and what the work needs to be. Stepping into that next level as an ally um, and, and, what, and, and working on behalf of marginalized groups that we're not a part of, right? That it isn't the responsibility of LGBTQ folks to end homophobia or people of color to end racism or you know people with disabilities to end ableism, right? Like it's so easy to then pass that along. Like that's one of the things you can do as an ally, right? It's just like, hey, this is really great. Check it out. Let's see how we can step up for each other. So at the end of the day, we all have so much more in common than we think. What would you say is the one underlying characteristic that unites us all? And how can we leverage this to make the world a better place? I love, I would say, you know, like we know, you know what it's like to love somebody. Everybody in this world has loved something once. And that, that feeling is, and, and I think there's a lot of privilege that I have that a lot of the love I've experienced has been positive, right? Absent the heartbreak that I think all of us face, but like I have a very positive relationship to that. But to me, like even our, our the ugliest moments that come out of so many of us is this dedication and love and need to protect these things that we hold so dear. Um, and so if we can relate on that level, I think that's, that's like the most human characteristic we have. Ash, I can't begin to tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to join me today for this episode. I've taken so much from the wisdom that you've so generously shared. I know the listeners are all going to feel the same way. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ash. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. I appreciate it. Such, a, such an amazing conversation. I hope we can, we can collaborate in person at some point would be, would be incredible. What a powerful episode. I'm so glad I had a chance to sit down with Ash and get her take on inclusion, leadership, sexuality, and more. She gave us lots to reflect on, but here are a few of the ideas that stood out to me most. We all have fears and insecurities, especially when it comes to speaking out about the issues that matter most to you. The only difference with great leaders is that they push past their fear in the name of a cause that's bigger than themselves. Everyone has the capacity to lead. All you have to do is recognize your own intrinsic power to create change in the world and step forward boldly. Everyone plays a part in creating an inclusive team dynamic. Instead of relying on senior leadership to ensure an inclusive company culture, everyone should be on the lookout for potential blind spots. We all deserve a seat at the table and taking steps to ensure everyone is represented equally is crucial. Mistakes are par for the course. And if you're not making any, there's a good chance you're not growing either. Ash shared some encouraging words about failure and learning to accept challenges as they come. And I think 
this is something we could all be reminded of more often. Instead of trying to be perfect, just try to be a little better tomorrow than you were yesterday, and you can't go wrong. Thanks for listening to Includer Pod, the podcast exploring inclusivity, diversity, and empathy so we can all be kinder to one another. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. For more info, blog posts, show notes, and more, visit includer.org. This season of Includer Pod was made possible by the Andrew Niku Foundation. And a special shout out to our team of amazing producers who helped bring the Includer Pod to life, including Jules Ho, El Carlos, Brittany Ween, Stephanie Andrews, Mackenzie Patterson, and Stacey Orth. Stay tuned for our next episode. I'm your host, Jeffrey Boyer Chapman. See you next time. Let the